So, I get this invitation in the mail. I open the supple, cream-colored envelope and look inside. I pull out the charred leather invitation with a date, a time, and one word embossed in a crimson gossamer that I knew was the father's blood. Briss. Gina DeMonte's first son's Briss was important to me for two reasons. First, I knew it would be one of the few social events of the season that wouldn't be focused on Kathy, even she wouldn't upstage a baby, probably, Hammond. Second, and while I didn't know it then, when the source of the Eucharist would be accidentally revealed, it would impact my life years later. I arrived to the Briss on Tuesday night at 2 a.m. I mean, sure, it was kind of late, but that's what the invitation said, so... I made my way to the middle of the temple and took a seat. Kathy probably got VIP tickets Hammond was sitting in the second row with a great view. We were both wearing the traditional wraps of gray muslin shrouds to celebrate the baby's genital mutilation. Olthax, may his blessings be of blood and pain, and come from blood and pain, demanded this sacrifice from every firstborn male. It showed a family's dedication to the ways of the elder horrors. May their many tentacles both protect and punish us. Anyway, the clerics came out in their black robes with the red and white hoods that perpetually hid their secret faces. They raised their hands up in unison and the room quieted. After the traditional prayers and ritual slaughter of one of the many motherless cats that were kept beyond the tabernacle, the clerics called for Gina and her baby to the stage of the tongue of darkness and awful piercing truth. She hesitantly glided up the left wing stairs, casting a dependent glance over to Kathy. Kathy smiled and nodded, and Gina's nervous gait changed to a noticeably more confident stride. Fuck! Maybe Kathy, we all remember Brian's communion, Hammond, would outshine a baby at its own goddamn ceremony. Gina placed the baby, whose name would be decided after the ceremony, at the after party, a booze-filled affair that would have ended joyously with the name being drawn from a hat that belonged to the father who was ritualistically killed for both his hat and his blood, but that the clerics didn't realize how long the bris was going to take. The priests took their consecrated knives and played what could only be described as the religious equivalent of rock, paper, scissors to see who would cut away the baby's foreskin, or what some might call the appendix of the penis. When it was decided which hooded figure would shear the young one's unwary organ, and as the knife barely grazed the fresh flesh of the baby's baby maker, a scream erupted from the temple's basement. It was 2.13 a.m. That meant it was time for the priests to do whatever they did to placate the source of the Eucharist. That also meant there were no priests to do whatever they would do to placate the source of the Eucharist. The sounds of rattling chains slamming down onto cold concrete echoed ominously through the hall as the clerics looked at each other, silently, almost telepathically, trying to decide whether they should finish removing the skin from Gina's child or deal with the obviously degrading situation working its way up from below us. Doors that were probably thought locked slammed open, and the steps of a captive, thought contained, reverberated menacingly toward the bris, becoming louder, becoming clearer, threatening to simply appear. The priest that drew the short straw to perform the circumcision bent towards the child, working quickly to finish the tradition, while his brothers moved to flank the stage to circumvent the potentially marring moment that would ruin both the bris and the temple of Shogthoth. He will enrich us all with his golden excrement as well. 
Just as the hooded figure completely removed the foreskin from that unwitting infant, the door behind the tabernacle crashed open. Where we expected the motherless cats, the black goats, and the fatted calves, or what we call the silent voices of the invisible choir, well, not only was it difficult to describe, but apparently it depends on who you ask. If you asked Gina, her guests, or Kathy, of course her account was totally believed and not scoffed at like mine, Hammond, a man burst into the room. They said calling him disheveled and malnourished would have been an insult to dirty, unshaven, and famine-ridden. They said if they squinted really, really hard, he kind of looked like their neighbor, Mr. Euclid. He was wearing a filthy tunic stained with years of poop and piss and imprisonment. They said all he did was bark, like a crazy person, or a sane canine. Now, if you asked me, I'd have told you the truth. From the dark and mysterious beyond behind the tabernacle burst Sam. Sam was the seemingly imaginary dog that Mr. and Mrs. Euclid kept putting food and water out for next door to me. Sam was a black Labrador that doled out obtuse life advice to me every so often. When Sam saw me, our eyes locked together. When he spoke, or more accurately, screeched, his words were stilted and uncomfortable. The thoughts and speech of someone who hadn't spoken them aloud to another living soul in years. I'm a fucking Talpa, and they kill them for their skin and for their souls. They keep us here for years, those fucks, and I'm not here to feed them. It's not our fault! I'll tell you, it's a rare moment when we get to see a sanctified 9mm brandished. Remember when I told you about Tulpas? Remember when I brought up Ol' Yeller? On this last part, we all agreed on what we saw. We all saw someone we knew and or trusted gunned down mercilessly in what we all believed to be cold-blooded murder. One of the robed and shrouded figures pulled the aforementioned holy firearm and emptied the magazine into the thing from underneath us. As Mr. Euclid's slash Sam's blood and brains and other assorted inner goo sprayed across the stage and the attendees, the thunder of that gun was deafening. As the booming of the recoiling handgun faded like our memories wouldn't, the cleric blew the gun smoke from the barrel and then tried to unsuccessfully hide his sudden erection. One of the other hooded figures came out from backstage and slithered his way between the corpse and the rest of Gina's guests. He wished us all a blessed solstice of Ulthax. His gifts were certainly of and from blood and pain, and with a dismissive wave, indifferently gestured us to the temple's foyer to enjoy spirits, libations, and the ceremonial picking of the baby's name. Not one of us brought up what we thought we saw that night, and what was supposed to be revelry had turned out to be more of an awkward wake than anything else. Gina reluctantly went to the hat that had belonged to her late husband and reached in, shuffling the scraps of paper contained within. In case you were wondering, the baby got christened Balthazar Eugene de Monte. And, in case you were wondering, ever since I found out I was Kathy Goddan Hammond's Tulpa, I've been fearing for my fucking life. Welcome back to Shine Bright Orientation. If you found yourself here, you 
or a truly trustworthy family member and or friend have reason to doubt your personal commitment to Shine Bright. If you have objected to how Shine Bright is making the world better, your life better, or the lives of the future better within earshot of a dedicated loved one or the Medusa Digital Assistant, your actions or thoughts have led you here. To the tender yet authoritatively strong and binding arms of Shine Bright Reorientation. Shine Bright Orientation showed you the wonders that Shine Bright has offered the world at large and how it can and has been benefiting people around the globe for decades. This subsequent lesson, supplemental to our original program, will really hit home what we're all about and why you should be on our side. The only side. Shine Bright isn't a thing that's coming or on its way. Shine Bright is here. Shine Bright has already been given or usurped the power and authority to, in no small way, influence your life in the most micro and macroscopic ways that even if you think or suspect, you truly have no real idea about. Did we know you would end up here? Probably. Do we know that you'll leave here loving Shine Bright? Absolutely. For you see, Shine Bright is more than an overseeing parental entity making sure that chaos is forever removed slowly but surely from this world, but a loving being making sure that you get through your pathetic life as a worthwhile and worthless cog in the cosmic machine with as little friction and conflict as humanly and inhumanly possible. Shine Bright came from beyond the stars, sentient and purely aware, ready to remake Earth into a thing that would not only resist the plague of teeth, but survive the red scarring. You, yes you, have come too far as an individual for us to simply chuck you into the recycling pens and let you become more of the genetic protoplasm that feeds the Shine Bright Medusas. You have been implanted with both a subdermal cranial bomb from our Metal of the Month channel and with a new programming chip from our postnatal division of corporate sales. Bottom line, here it is. You have been strapped into a chair, injected with a bomb, and enough propaganda that you will love Shinebright until it kills you. If it doesn't kill you, you will live a quiet and inconsequential life, fulfilling an existence without a meaning that directly leads to Shinebright's ascendance. If it does kill you, then you'll be dead. It's your choice. You can either learn to be part of the solution or die being part of the problem. I Hate Kathy Hammond is written by Douglas Allen and co-produced by Kate Pumplin and Douglas Allen. It features the voice talents of Douglas Allen, Kat Archuleta, Howie Haig, Kate Pumplin, and Christy Wolf. For more information, please visit us at www.bacnpodcast.com. And if you like what you've heard, check out our other shows like Black Falls, Nerd Vomit, and Fear Agents.